Welcome to Off the Record, episode 2.8. I'm going to start off today by discussing a not-so-fun subject, which is burnout. That's where I am right now. Uh, I've sadly overworked myself, and when Zach and I used to do this podcast, we'd get a bunch of episodes taped in advance in case one of us had a bad week. And I do have a few stored up, but um, truth be told, I just can't get the work done right now to get them edited and an episode put together and I need to take some time to get in a good headspace again. So what you have here today is I had a short run podcast called Jesse Cannon Talks To where I did some interviews. Uh, You may have heard this before. It aired about six months ago. It's an interview with my friend Mike Fiorentino from Somos. I think we had a really great talk on this episode. And I wanted to re-air it. And it's about all I got for you guys this week. And I think it's a fantastic conversation. And I hope you enjoy it. I've been listening to their new record that will be coming out next year a ton. And it really is an amazing record, and I figured uh, I'd drum up some hype for that record since they're going to be doing really big things next year. And I hope you enjoy this. It's about a very serious topic with depression, and we touch on a bunch of other things and creativity, and I think this is awesome. So here it is. Welcome to Jesse Cannon Talks To. I'm here today with Mike Fiorentino from Somos. Am I saying your last name right? I've known you for so long, I never know if I'm saying your last That's name right. That's it, right? Fiorentino, you got it. Okay. Well, Mike plays bass and sings in a great band named Somos. If you're listening to this, odds are you know that because why else would you be listening to it? Because if you know me, you also know I had the pleasure of working with them on their last uh, record as a producer and their split uh, with Sorority Noise, these guys were one of those bands that it's not often that when I get done with a record, I want to listen to it all the time. And um, the record we did together, uh, Temple of Plenty, became the soundtrack to the unfun breakup I had last year. It was a record I turned to a lot, and um, I really like these guys a lot. They're really smart, unlike a lot of bands. I thought we could get a good interview. So, Mike, how are you doing? Good. How's it going, Jesse? I am awesome and awake and vibrant and excited to do this. Hell yeah. So you guys right now are not presently touring. You're writing. Yeah. So you're in that creative mode, and a lot of what we're going to talk about is creativity. What's been inspiring you lately? Um, This is going to sound... Well, I don't know if I can point to one direct thing, but I think Anything. I mean, music that I've been listening to a lot, I'm still listening a lot to the 1975 album. Um, the that, new Always record is something that's been inspiring for me. I, I, I saw I saw you talking about that in the funny thing. I got turned on to that yeah. from this band called Romp that I recorded. And the reason I recorded Romp was because they liked your record. Oh, nice. Oh, and I think then I they turned Romp. me on to that yeah. record. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's a it's a it's a it's a uh, circle of life right there. I I think that I think the always record is just I don't even usually like because it's a little bit on the lo-fi side and yeah, it's kind of just straight ahead sort of fuzzy indie rock and I don't usually that's not my thing but I just think the melodies on the record are so perfect that I just just from that vantage point alone I've just been eating it up and just enjoying it but also trying to study it so. So would you say study it? I I think this is one of the things that I always think uh, 
is interesting about you guys is that when you see the writing about you guys on the internet, people always talk about how poppy you guys are. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, you're playing... (sighs) I feel like in the... I don't want to, like, peg you guys in the emo revival thing, but let's call it twinkly guitar rock thing. There's a real almost rebellion against pop and a lot of that stuff. And I think it's like almost like shameful. And you guys have been very not ashamed of your influence of pop hooks and stuff like that. Um, I am curious how long have, like what has been your evolution with integrating pop into you guys' music? Was it more that you, I imagine you came from a punkier place where you were mm-hmm. ever more into a more abrasive things? Like, what, what's going on in your creative process with integrating pop into what you guys do? Yeah, I mean, back in high school, Phil and I were in a hardcore band together. And so I used to really like that when hardcore was huge. I loved Modern Life is War. I loved Verse and, you know, Have Heart. And then basically, we both just started to like stuff like hot water music or the replacements. We kind of, we went into those like gateway bands that mm-hmm. are, they, you know, they kind of came out, it's post-punk or it's post-hardcore, but there's more melody. I think Fugazi would, I think we'd both describe that as a band that was influential. And we just started getting more into the idea of combining the energy of punk, but also the melodies of some of these bands that just wrote, at the end of the day, just wrote good pop songs, but there was still like an energy and a spirit that could be def- described as punk, I guess, because it was played loud or it was played fast. So it was never like a conversation we had, but I just think we, because Phil and I write the songs, I think it was just a evolution that we were sort of undergoing together because we were very close friends. And that's Mm. just something, yeah, I think it just kind of happened. But I think ever since Somos started, we we basically, we met Evan pretty much three years ago to the day. Wow. And, 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 uh, you know, ever since then, we've always just wanted to write interesting rock music that is also just focused on good melodies, basically. That's kind of always been our thing. I like that because, yeah, one of the things I like, I, I find it funny because, like, obviously, like, when we talk on Twitter or we talk in person, it's like you're the type of person who's, you know, you're tweeting about, like, Iggy Azalea, Billy Bragg, and things like that. And I was curious, like, what makes you guys drawn then when you're having an ob- all these influences like i don't see you really tweeting about the like twinkle daddy stuff yeah and what makes you guys drawn to doing the twinkly thing as opposed to that you know like a perfect example is like too is like i remember when we were working on that sorority doy splits like we were all of us were you know so in love with that 1975 record yeah uh whether it's mike my co-producer then all of you guys and so what make draws you guys to doing the twinkly emo-ish thing compared to all the other routes you could go with your influences? I think that, I mean, I think that that is just a style because we came from the punk rock thing and then we got into some of the, the some of those bands or, you know, listening to stuff like the Smiths or even like Blink-182. Phil is a huge fan of, of that. You know, I was too. Or stuff like, or like we love, like when, when Listen and Forgive came out, we were like, oh, this is the best guitar work ever. You know what I mean? Mm. That transit album. And I think that was a record that we both just listened to a ton. And I think we probably just absorbed some of it. Mm-hmm. And then that just, like, in terms of the guitar work, that record is really just huge, I think, for, for Phil and Justin, or at least for Phil and the way he writes riffs. And I think that that comes through probably, even without ever being a conscious decision. But 
And then listening to like Iggy Azalea or like list or Phil likes to listen to like the new One Direction stuff. A lot of times that is just for <laughs> production. I mean, really, that's just like pure production stuff. Yeah, Phil, I'd say reason I listen to it. Right, because he's just because those are those are like the heavy hitters. You know, they've got the huge budgets. And also, you know, it's, it can be a guilty pleasure too, but we like to just listen to a broad spectrum almost equally for like the production ideas and the sonic landscapes type stuff. So, yeah. I mean, I do think it's funny because um, anytime I have a band in here and like one of the marks I can see of like if the band's going to go on to bigger, better things is like when the band only listens to like scene bands and they're mm. only in that. Those are all the bands that just never stop being a local band, and a lot of the bands that's a little are a little bit more worldly and can bring in influences from places. Not every time, but I, I will say this: every time the band just listens to scene bands, they're going nowhere. But like, you have a much higher chance if you're like listening and bringing in those other influences. And I don't think people always get how much. You know, I've been really obsessed with this thing of um, that you're the average of all the people you hang around. That sure. People either bring you up or bring you down. And I think it's the same thing with music listening is that I find when I'm producing bands, I've been like really going through a particularly inspired era that like because I've been listening to so much different stuff, I'm feeling super inspired. And then I know when I'm like being told that like. I'm just working on like a rise core band and then like a pop punk band. And I'm just listening to that stuff to get things. I just don't have as many good ideas. Yeah. I think, I mean, that makes sense. I think that I just think, I mean, no band's going to be like, you, whether there's three or four or five people, it's not like you're ever going to be able to incorporate every little influence or, you know, every interest is going to get reflected through the songwriting. But I just think there's a, I mean, like you said, there's no guarantee with it, but I think that, if you are someone that just genuinely likes to branch out and you you stay curious about no matter what the genre that gets thrown on it, you stay curious about it and you're willing to learn, even if it's a small aspect of it, I think that does help your chance of innovating in a small way if, if you're able to, to to have that. I think I think that's totally true. Um so with that, you just kind of talked about the different personalities coming together. So one of the things I don't know that everybody realizes this is that when we did Temple of Plenty, um, Evan had temporarily been between being in you guys' band. He was mm -hmm. in it for the demo and then in it when we did the sorority noise split. Right. But um, we did it with a different drummer. He was particularly really influenced by battles, which was like some of the right. choices we made to make on Temple of Plenty. What is the conglomeration of influences that's coming together for what you guys are doing now? Is like there's somebody who's taking things at a certain thing? Like, wh wh what are you guys diverging on? Or are you guys coming more together on things? What's going on right now? Well, we all, I think that right now, the big influences are, like, we love that, the Phoenix, the Breakout Phoenix record. The uh, Wolfgang Amadeus. Yeah, that's, that is, yeah. I, I guess I'll just list, like, the mutual thing. So mm -hmm. I think we're united on loving the Phoenix record. Um, I recently came around and joined ranks with the other three guys on the band Fulse. I think that yeah. they, I think that, oh, yeah. that, that just the rhythm section combined with the guitar playing, I, I'm not a huge fan of the guy's voice or the vocal ideas, but... It's the, funny, that was the same thing for me. The, the band is just, I'm like, oh, if this band could just write a little bit more of like a flowing style of, I don't know, I, but either way, the music is just insane. Yeah. So we see eye to eye on that. We all love, I know you'll, you'll probably think this is cheesy, but we love Drake. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I've come along well in a dream. You guys actually kind of forced me to listen to it before yeah. we did that last EP, and that, that's what got me into it. That and uh, a girl I've been dating is really, really into it, so I have to listen to, to it more. Oh, yeah. I'm, I mean, fi- I'm finally on the Drake train, yeah. but I'm not, like, riding in the first cart yet. Don't, no, don't ride the first cart, because mm-hmm. what? But it's so funny, because Phil just sent me a demo, like, three days ago, and there was an, he'll, like, reference tracks I should check out to see where he got the idea, and it was, like, track one on... The second to last Drake album. It was just funny. I'm really looking forward to you guys' cover of Club Going Up on a Tuesday. Oh, that'd be, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When, I'm curious, is there ever an influence conflict lately? Um, Evan and I love Morrissey too much. And those guys are just like, they just roll their eyes. It's kind of funny. They're like, oh my God, you guys, it's so embarrassing. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, Evan really takes it far. Yeah. (laughs) He almost looks like him, so it's like insane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, so, 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 he's kind. He's kind of like the more uh, like uh, what do you call it? Uh, California version of Morrissey. That, yeah, yeah. If Morrissey grew up in a temperate, nice climate mm-hmm. and not you know cold Manchester, he he. <laughs> no, but yeah, uh, yeah. Like that. That's that's the thing that we clash about. But it's not like we're. It's not like I'm trying to write like more. Like I'm not trying to sing or write like him. So it doesn't really clash in the songwriting, but. That's somebody that we don't quite see eye to eye on. Um, sometimes I'll and sometimes I'll bring stuff to them that's like a little too. They're like, no, that's like that's like a Kings of Leon song. You know what I mean? Like they're Ooh. like, you know what I mean? Like it's a little too. Because that's the thing. Because Phil and I have we'll write ten things and like one of them will pass the test for each other. So it's like half the time it's garbage. So I think some sometimes I err a little bit too far on the like just cheesy thing. I think I would have to say. Hmm. And these guys hold me hold me back. Well, I think that's one of the things that doesn't get discussed a lot in bands is that, like, you know, it's always funny, like, when you see, like, a bassist leave of a band, no offense to, you know, you bassist, but, like, you know, when the person's just the bassist and they leave the band and people are like, oh, it doesn't matter, they're the bassist, you never know who's the person who's holding the standards in a band. Oh, and, yeah. like, saying no to the bad ideas. And it's, like, it's always funny to me because usually whatever the internet discussion of, like, when a band member leaves, they're like, oh, that person doesn't matter, does. It's usually the opposite of what I've seen in the studio. So you guys process... It sounds like you're saying it's usually like Phil's coming up with a riff or you're coming up with a riff and then you two take it to each other and then that's the beginning of the weeding. It's either either Phil will send me a track that he has. Um, you know, usually there'll be some drum samples. A lot of times there'll be some synth on there, lead and rhythm. It'll be like a minute long, a verse, a chorus. Or I'll send him a vocal melody that just has basic chords under it because I'm terrible at guitar. And then he'll build stuff around that. So it either starts... With that, or it just starts with Phil sending me a track. And then, and usually when Phil sends me something, I'll know pretty quickly. Like the way I like to do it is Phil will send me something. And if I can't think of something really good within five minutes, I'll just put it on the back burner. Cause Hmm. I, cause I think that, I mean, we work, we, we like to refine stuff and we go back and we edit. It's not like we just throw it together and that's it. But I think that Phil writes so much and he sends me so much that I'm able to say, you know, like it doesn't immediately hit me. Let's just put it aside. But if, you know, every five times will send me something, it'll just click and I'll, I'll start writing a melody, you know, the, within 30 seconds. And that's usually what will turn into a good song. Hmm. It's just Phil writes a lot. Phil, 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 will, Phil works at a comedy club and he'll go in. He's like a like a restaurant comedy club thing. And he'll show up at like an hour before his shift every day and just record stuff. 
So I've, I've always got material I can, I can work on. It's awesome. That's great. And that's really important. I think that that's like one of the things that uh, people really uh, neglect. I, I like, I even think about it. Like there's that scene in um, the Jay-Z documentary fade to black and mm-hmm. like Tibblehead's playing Jay things. He's like, Nope, not that track. Nope, not that track. No, yeah. not that track. And then I want to say it's dirt off your shoulders mm. that he hears. And then he just goes in there and he like, after he finally hears it and it's like, it's just goes in a second. Yeah. That, and that's the best moment too. Cause it's not, it's not, it's not that you're not going to have to work on it, mm-hmm. but if you can get that spark initially, that's just, that is, that, that is my favorite. I think that's my favorite thing of being in a band hmm. is that initial moment of like that thrill and the adrenaline of this basic idea, you know, you can start to visualize it and then the process starts. I just, I love it. And then I don't want to give short thrift to, cause to Justin and Evan, because mm. Phil and I, Phil and I kind of supply like the steak and then they'll put the sauce on it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I mean, I would even give them that you guys are doing some skeleton and they're putting the skid on it. No one wants to look at a skeleton. Exactly. No, exactly. Mm. I mean, Justin is so Justin. I mean, he's really out there with the stuff he listens to and he just, I think he approaches guitar in an interesting way. And yes. Evan, and I think the same Evan with, I, I just, I really like Evan's drumming. So those guys, those guys turn, you know, you know, ideas into songs, basically. So I, I, I don't want to just say Phil and I are the songwriters. We're probably yeah. like the rough draft guys. And then we, you know, we compose together. I think that's a lot of bands, though, too. And there's nothing wrong. And like, I will say this about you guys of like, as somebody who sits in the studio with, over a hundred bands a year. I am, will say that the lineup you guys have at both times and both things, Mm. uh, everybody kind of contributes a level of creativity. That's very, very high compared to a lot of other bands. Yeah. There's no one who's kind of having the slack picked up by the other member. Mm. You're all really bringing it. And that's, I think one of the things that makes you special. Like even with Evan coming in, like, I was so scared because Mike was such a great drummer. Oh, yeah. When I went to see you guys the first time, I was like, oh, God, this is going to be such a bum out, isn't <laughs> it? I'm going to have to, like, give a lecture at the end. And then I walk up to Evan at the end. I'm like, man, you improved all those drum parts on the record. Yeah. But, like, it's so rare that a new member comes in and doesn't just imitate what the old member did and actually makes the parts better. And Evan totally did that. I agree. I think that, I think that Mike wrote—I think Mike's drum playing on Temple of Plenty is great. Yeah. Um, there's no hard feelings. And I think that mm-hmm. Evan, Evan just came in with a little bit of a different angle and he plays with a lot of energy live. And I think that you're totally right. Like, you know, cause we were nervous too. It sucked. Like we didn't have a drummer. It was before the record came out. Like we had no momentum. And then, you know, Evan moves out here and it's just, it's just gelled. So it's been awesome. Yeah. No. And I think that that's a, a, an ideal thing for a band to have that is very, very rare. Right. Um, in any situation, it's not even something that band has to have right. because I see tons of great bands where it's just like three out of five show up to the studio and do all the work and it still comes out and they make great records, but like... Or The Cure or something, right? Where it's all... Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's another great example is that The Cure... Well, even with The Cure, what I thought was very interesting is that su- that there'll even be the thing of that some of them will bring something, but then Robert will come in and he'll really just take it over the top. Like he'll take what they played and improve upon it. So while he may get inspired from them, he's going to come back and he's going to replay the majority of the instruments. Sure. Sure. One of the things I think that also sets you guys apart is, um, people really have identified with the lyrics you've written. Mm. Um, 
I, I I always see the compliments to the record, and I you know, and I myself, I mean, like I said in the top, I think a lot of people. So, so to get to some of the process, we recorded Temple of Plenty almost a year before it came out. We started, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Early yeah. like eight months, yeah, eight months. It was a long time. Yeah, it was. So, and then we recorded some more, and it was kind of funny. So in that time, I then went through a horrendously bad breakup of three years, my longest relationship. And uh, Mm -hmm. I found, even though we discussed some of the song meanings and some of the other stuff, that you'd be writing something that's kind of like a more political type or bigger picture about a social issue. Yet, it seems like a lot of people take these to be relationship songs and Mm -hmm. stuff like that um how where does your lyric writing style come from what's some insight on how you've done that have you you know did you find that from somebody else did you kind of call that was there intent in it or did it just come natural talk to me about that i think that the more i just like to read a lot and i think that if i read like an interesting novel that is going to hit a bunch of switches in my brain Mm -hmm. and i think that i just think that like like one of my favorite authors is Joyce Carol Oates. Mm, and yeah. every time I read a book by her, it's so it's dark and the themes she touches on are always so it's just like such a sharp writing style that she has and she's able to, you know, in a sentence delve into somebody's character and sum it up. And that's something that I've that's it's like a style that I go for and I just think that like I obviously I listen to a lot of music and I ha- I get inspired with the melodies and the ideas and that, but I think lyrically it comes from just, I, I love to read and I get a lot of ideas. Like as I'm reading, I'll have a pencil, whether it's fiction or nonfiction and I'll just, I'll write down a line that I get, or I'll, I'll paraphrase a sentence they said. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to pick through that in terms of, you know, to try to come up with a lyric. So it's really, is just, it, it comes from that basically the lyrics. So I don't, I don't, with- does that, <laughs> It no, yeah. no, it does it does make sense. I'm gonna pry some more, and we're gonna get this clear. So it's weird, yeah. Let's take like um, so. I guess some of the backstory. So people might not realize that um, both you and I are far left and appreciate some good Marxism and some socialism. And you're particularly very much more well read in that stuff than I am. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're both very politically yeah. motivated people. We very much care about this stuff. So when I like exist, like I feel like the need to like bludgeon someone over the head with my facts and my points. Right. But you're not doing that. I notice where comes the restraint to not be so overt when you're saying like, I remember, um, God, I'm so bad with song titles, but the, you talked about the one about, uh, on Temple Pony that was about, uh, somebody coming out of the closet. Oh yeah. Lifeline. Yeah. Lifeline. That's it. Yes. Most people's tendency is to be overt. Is there... Mm-hmm something in you that says no to that? Like, where does that come from? I don't think there's, it's weird because it's not something in, because I think the only, the only record on this album that people were like, oh, this is about a social theme was dead wrong. Because I mm-hmm. think there was that line about the nine to five job. Yes. And in the, in the pitchfork write up, he mentioned it, stuff about it being like a working class song. And that was the one song people picked up on everything else. People have not really picked up on it. And I love bands like Anti-Flag or the Dead Kennedys, but I never wanted to be a band that hit people over the head with it in the sense that you have to identify with this one political thing or else you're going to be kind of alienated by it. Hmm. Or even like Rage. Like I think that I think that I like political music or music that is a little bit more personal 
And then maybe it can, through an interaction or something that happened in your personal life, a theme that'll come out that's connected to a bigger thing. But I, I never wanted to write a song that was like, no to NAFTA, like in the, you know what I mean? Like that's, <laughs> that's the chorus. Like, I just yeah. think, like, I think bands that have done that have done it well. And I, I you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to do that. Like write like articles and then just turn them into melodies. Yeah. So I guess it was conscious, but you know, it's kind of weird. Like people haven't really picked up on it as much as I thought they would. But I'm also not really upset about it because we have said political things or we'll post things as things are happening. And I would rather be, I would rather do that, like have, have lyrics that are a little bit more universal and then have a platform to say things as they happen in real time, as opposed to pigeonholing ourselves as like a political band. Yeah. Cause people, people, I think people that gets a certain reaction out of people that isn't always good. Yeah, well, especially when you're dealing with a lot of kids who come to you from, like, a pop-punky world. Mm -hmm. um, they just really can't handle that. But, um... Yeah. yeah. I, I, that, that is a frustrating thing, because obviously there is a part of you that wants to enact social change. Yes. Um, a big part. Um, but, yeah, I actually... You know, now that you say that, I'm like, oh, wow, you're right. This is such a classier way of doing things. And... You know, I think back, like, when you talk about, like, the dead Kennedys and, like, Jello talking about how Jerry Brown's going to be a fascist leader. And you're like, dude, he's yeah. the, like, most left-leading governor in America yeah. right now and, like, <laughs> doing the most progressive legislation we've seen in decades. Like, you're a little over the top here, you silly motherfucker. Who, like, and, I, and I think that, and I honestly think that that dates the dead Kennedys a little bit. Yes, Because you, you can't, you're, no, I mean, that song is classic, but it's not like... Mm -hmm. If some if some you know sixteen year old throws on a a record and it's all about Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher, you know what I mean? That's not necessarily going to hit the same way it did at, at the time. And that's not. I mean, I I'm not trying to diminish the dead Kennedys' legacy, sure. but I I do think that political music that's talking like concrete policies or leaders and it's calling out things that are happening in the society at that time. I do think that that unless it's unless it's done really really well. And there are songs that have done that really well, but I, I do think that there's a tendency for that to then become dated as times change. Well, I, I think th this is a great point. And like, I think that, you know, they're like on a perspective of things is you're going a little bit more into the meta vague thing. And then like, you know, on the spectrum, like I think about, so when I hear California Uberouse and he says that Jerry Bowie, as much as that's one of my favorite songs of all time, every time I'm like, oh, Jello, you silly motherfucker. Oh, yeah, it's kind of funny. But, it's like, funny, yeah. Yeah, like, he just looks, time didn't age that well, but then you take yeah. a song like Rock the Casbah, yep. which is dealing with a really political thing, but you don't really, it doesn't beat you over the head with its message so much that you're still able to, like, listen to it, and even though they were saying something very much about the time and the oil and right. what was going on in the Middle East, it's just not as silly, and it doesn't age badly, even though they're trying to say this foreign policy is a horrible decision. Yes, I think that, and I th isn't it a thing that there was people were listening to that flying like bombing missions in the first Gulf War and Joe Strummer found out about it? I'm pretty sure that's a thing. Yeah. No, you know, what's funny is I don't think it's that, you know, what I remember he got really mad about was um, when we were ousting um, Noriega in Panama. I want to say oh, the, the, right, right. They blasted it at right. the embassy to try right. to get them out as they blasted. 
Would he, the uh, record combat rock at the embassy and Joe Strummer was livid about that. Sure. Right. Because that's a that's a political record. But that, that's also the record that got them playing like stadiums. Yes. In the U.S. And I think that that's a good example. Like I, I think that the cla- I think that out of those the, those punk bands from that era, the Clash wrote the best political lyrics. I think they were just the most intelligent. They were they were they were sharp and forceful without being preachy. And kind of like nails on the chalkboard. I just think that they just—I think they approached really well. Um, I'm I'm right there with De- to me uh, the two best written lyrics of songs in the history of life to me are uh, "Death or Glory" by the Clash and "Bastards of Young" by the Replacements are sure. my two favorite lyrics. And now that we're discussing this, it's like I'm kind of learning as I go. I'm like, ah, those are like that middle ground of like. It's clear enough the intent that if you think about it, but it's not so clear that it's beating you over the head like, say, an anti-flag song. Right, right, right. And I love the anti-flag. I, Sh- I think anti-flag served their. I think they served their purpose. Like, but it is kind of funny though because you did just kind of put a past tense on that. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't. I guess they. Well, I mean, I can. I don't want to like write them off, but I just think that they, they were really relevant. And, you know, right around the time this the, in 2004 when Bush was going off for re-election. Totally. And I, and I respect, like, what they did, what Fat Mike did, mm-hmm. without fully agreeing with the idea that, you know, people should vote for Kerry. But at least they were, <laughs> at least they were playing a role that was, like, injecting, trying to inject punk into, the, into, like, a mainstream political debate. And I think that that was awesome. And I think that served its purpose. But, yeah, I think that Anti-Flag's lyrics sometimes are also are a little bit dated. Even though I, I love the band, they were influential. Yeah, I, I honestly, I I got into that band when I was. They were just coming out, and I was a junior in high school, putting in shows for them. And they were because they were so political. It's what impassioned me to make sure I got them out there as much as I could. Sure, but yeah, I think there was also a thing of that because you're younger at the time. It's also not as obvious. Like you know, you're not dealing with your anger as well as you do as you get older. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, talking about getting older and evolving, um. So it became a big thing that you came out about that you had to pass up this last tour with dads that you guys would presently be on right now um, because you'd been dealing with some depression. Mm -hmm. When I looked at the comments on Absolute Punk, which are always the cesspool of the internet, probably up to 4chan. Not as bad as punk news, though. Oh yeah, no, no, actually, that that's true. I I should give credit where his credit is They're due. The, the, tro- worst. Yeah. The, the trolls that live under that bridge are the ugliest of trolls. Well, that's the we we get out of any site. Punk punk news commenters just hate us. I don't know why. We just there's always negative things about us, and like we'll get a few in absolute punk. Uh, sorry, this is a little tangent, but yeah, no, I don't know what I don't know what their deal is, but those people are just miserable. I don't know. It's, it sucks. Like, it, it, and it's been like that forever, and it's that way for every band. Like, yeah. you know, like, uh, I've done a lot of work with those guys in Leftover Crack and Morning Glory, and, like, every time there's a poster, it's like, I hope they die of an overdose. It's, like, very kind. Very kind you are. Yeah, it's just, it's lame. It's lame. But so to get to the, the point of it, there, there was yeah. somebody who said something I couldn't help but chuckle because it is a thing that I think people selfishly feel with music is that, People identified with the emotion you were going through with Mm -hmm. Temple of Plenty. And somebody said, I hope he gets better, but not too better because we need another sad record. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. (laughs) I had to to laugh because Mm -hmm. it is like, while I was like, oh, this fucking dumbass kid. Like, 
there's also a part of me, though, that's like, I mean, I've, I've discussed on um, Zach and I's podcast off the record, like my feelings about Say Anything, which is that Is a Real Boy is one of my favorite records of all time. But then Max got medicated and got mentally better. And I haven't really liked his output. And you can't help but kind of make that association. Yeah, and I think... Have you been having to deal with that at all? No, I think that the, the It's a Real Boy thing, I think, that, I mean, I think that's just such a good record. Maybe the dude just, in it's such a masterpiece that the guy may have just blown it in one record. You know what I mean? And there may have just been creative exhaustion. Like, how do you follow that up? And I think it, it's, I think it's, interesting thing that no one talks about with that record in particular, which is that mm-hmm. he also spent over six months in the studio on it, living right. with Tim O'Hare. And then right. the next records, they didn't have as much time. Right. And I th- yeah. And I think, I think that, I think that that's, that it's worth discussing, but to reduce it to just, you know, he was manic or, you know, really struggling with mental health issues for this one record. And then he wasn't for the subsequent records. It's probably a factor, but, you know, I think it's, it's too much of a reduction just to boil it down to that. And I think that, I thought that comment was interesting because you can be sad and channel, you know, misery in your personal life or you're sad about things that are happening in society without being depressed. Like people don't get that sadness and depression are two different things because depression is something that can knock you down for the count. It's something that can make you not, you know, it can really just mess up your ability to do just basic stuff. Whereas you can be in touch with darker negative things and, manifest that through the music and also be, you know, somewhat healthy and like able to function. So it's, it's just, it's, it's a thing that people get confused all the time. And it's like a colloquialism. Like people will throw around, Oh, I'm depressed. Like they'll throw it around. You know what I mean? But it's, I just think that that comment was just it's like, I, I see where he's coming from. Like it would be lame if I came out and it was like this super positive, like Christian praise record. <laughs> but like, you know what I mean? Like, I just think that you can write good, heartfelt music that's sad or pulls on people's heartstrings without being, you know, a, a, without being a wreck in your personal life or in terms of your mental health. Yeah. This is something I, I've been really in the last year thinking a lot about, and I think you just said it very well. And cause like I was really depressed growing up, but now mm-hmm. I just get sad sometimes. Like, you know, obviously like, you know, somebody dies or right. I have a bad breakup. It's there's a sadness, but like what I don't think people get is that the real definition of depression is that you're then what you're getting, the information you're getting, you're processing wrong. Exactly. And you're not seeing you're not getting the objectivity that is normal for people. And exactly. You're, I guess that's the thing is, is that doesn't, we, we've equated that that may, is what makes great music, but really, I do think extreme emotion makes great music. Like, I, I, I'm, I've long had this theory that, like, you know, like, for example, like, someone like Kurt Cobain felt so much more pain than the average person that mm-hmm. many people were able to identify with him because he felt an emotion that was so much stronger than what most of us feel on a day-to-day basis that right. when we needed to turn to that, where so many people identified with this because it was so extreme, but there's also a part of me that says that, you know, you don't necessarily need to be, I think that that's like, maybe the thing is like, you know, you read one too many Rolling Stone profiles and all of a sudden you think you have to be this miserable, eccentric (laughs) downer to make great art. Right. And it's kind of a real relief that you're not seeing it that way. Yeah, I, that's, that's a, it's 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 like the cliched image of the the artist who's so tortured that 
the only way they can communicate is through their music. And, you know, I think, I think the, the image of like the, you know, the drugs come into it. And I just think it's a, it's an image that was sold. I mean, it's like, I think I, I'm guessing it comes out of like the 60s, 70s, like tragic rock star type thing, but I just think it's so played out. And I think that that shouldn't be people's frame of reference. You know what I mean? I think we can, you know, we can kind of move on from that. I, I think and I hope that that can happen. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it takes there not being the profile. and like cause the, the problem is, is it makes for a great story and everybody wants to write the trope that makes that story. Right. And like, that's the movie is that they were so d- depressed or there was this extreme thing because that's what sells when really it's not as fun to say like, Ah, they were happy sometimes. They were sad sometimes. That they were had it had an emotion here and there, and had a spike. They wrote a great song, or exactly. they just had a great idea where they're going to the bathroom one day. That's not that doesn't make for good film. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not as good as somebody in, passed out in the hotel room. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, you know what I mean. Like it's just yeah. I see what you're saying. So with that, have you noticed as you've been going through this any changes in your creativity? Yeah, I'm right. I'm just writing more. So you know what I mean? so I should also say this: as you say you're writing more, you're saying you're feeling better as well. I am. I'm feeling better, and because because of that, so when you're feeling better and you're not in your own head about every little thing, you know, you can plan a day, you can you know plan to write and then follow through on it. You can follow up with other aspects, school or work or whatever you're doing. If you know if you're able to do those, cross those off your checklist. You've got time to write music just better time management. Um, and then you can just, I, I've just found that I've been more productive. I'm writing more lyrics. Um, Phil and I are, are, are writing a lot more. So I have not seen a dip or I haven't seen, I just haven't seen anything negative come out of it in, in, from, from, in terms of writing. I think it's just helped. Feeling better has helped like conclusively, I think. That's Really, really great to hear because yeah. we all want you guys to make a great record. Yeah, definitely. again. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think think uh, with that perception though, aside, did you feel like when you were going through the last stuff? So obviously, you said you've been battling through depression. What have you learned? I know that like, so to me, one of the biggest things with the writer's block, and mm-hmm. not to say that you were having that, but it's like. An example is that, like, writer's block, I think, is when somebody has changed and they're not comfortable with the output they're now making. Right. What have you guys seen in the perception? You're, like, what have you learned from the demo to Temple to now that you're really seeing is helpful in your band? In terms of, like, you're saying, like, the difference of, this, the, of the songs? Yeah, I mean, any creative thing? Like, you know, what, what have you guys learned along the way? I think that we've we have learned that you can make a powerful song with like a, a controlled energy that you don't have to be on 11 at all times to write a song that hits hard. Cause like on the demo, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like really just over the top, huge sounding. You know, like I, I, I wouldn't, we talk about like the Nirvana thing of like quiet, loud. You guys were just loud on the demo. It's just loud. It's nonstop. It's, it's super angsty. It's, you know, the drums are wailing, the guitar, you know what I mean? Like there's no space. And I think that we've learned that, well, dynamics are huge. And then like a band like Block Party, I should say that's another huge influence. Um, it's like they everything is so controlled. It's a lot of closed hi-hat, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of like, it's just, it's like this frantic energy that's like in this box that it almost feels like it's going to break, but it never quite does on a lot of their songs. And that's something that we wanted to go for. Like the controlled awesome energy. Yeah. 
Because yeah. that's one of my favorite bands of all time. Yeah, such a good band. Yeah. Mm. So that I think that's 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 one thing we've learned is in, just in terms of the the dynamics or the architecture of the song, it's that big picture, just dynamics. You have to have those to have a good record. And yeah, just finding a way to have that energy without, you know, like, you know, Evan's on the ride symbol and we're, you know, you know what I mean? Like, we, you don't have to be on 11 to write a banger, basically. And that's that we learned that from Drake to bring it all back. <laughs> that's, kind of, that, that's kind of a funny place to learn that lesson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we didn't learn it just from Drake. I mean, just Drake does that well, I think, in his own world that he's that's so different from ours, but he just does it well. Yeah, you know, it's really funny because, like, with Drake, I, what I, I notice is I feel like, like, we were talking about, like, that Jay-Z thing or, like, you getting demos from Phil. I feel like one of the most interesting things for Drake is, like, as somebody who does, like, a lot of, like, dance and hip-hop production, I feel like there's that point where somebody's playing back the tracks and they're giving the dust. I feel like he chooses the song that no one else is choosing. Sure. Like, yeah. and then he takes that riff and he somehow makes that work and makes a mood that no one else is making right now. Exactly. So with that, what's sounding different about this new record as you guys write it compared to the last stuff? Well, I don't, I don't know quite yet because right now it's just, it's just, it's just guitars and me singing. We haven't really, we haven't done any full band rehearsals on new stuff yet. Gotcha. But I think that if there is any diff, I think it's leaning a little bit more towards because the 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 split we did with you, we really like those songs, but there's they're a little bit slower, they're a little bit. They're a little bit of a step down from Temple. Yeah, they were definitely like we got done. We we're like, whoa, these are a lot more mellow than. Yeah, very mellow. And like, it and just then came the out. The new one you guys just did with Have Mercy is yeah. a lot more rocking. Right, right. And I think that we just we want to combine like good dynamics and poppiness, but we also we also want to write stuff that's really high energy. So I think that I mean, it's not going to be. It's obviously not going to be Temple of Plenty Part Two, but I think like that new song we have, Streets Upon Streets. That vibe, Great song. I think that vibe will be something that we go for. Like Evan's drumming. I mean, like Evan really loves the drummer of Foles, and he, oh, yeah. he he likes writing beats like that. So I think it'll be a lot of stuff like that. A lot of a lot of stuff with like closed hi hat and the chorus, and then just like downstrokes and stuff. But then like cool like kind of angular guitar riffs. I don't know. Hmm. I don't think it's going to be that different than Temple. I think that. I, I don't. I don't even. I, I feel weird answering it because we just yeah. haven't brought it into the full <laughs> This is studio. one of those questions that, like, if I don't ask it, then the world's mad at me. But right. I hate asking it. Yeah, so, yeah. Hey, you're an interviewer. I want to know what the next record is like. I love this record, and I'm curious because these guys are in the middle of writing, and you're talking to them about creativity. But I know it's like the biggest bub out because it's like almost like, hey, I just want this to kind of come as it goes and right, find yeah. myself along the way, and I don't want to have to stick to this later if I, it doesn't turn out this way. Right, right. Yeah, I think, but I think just in terms, like the last song we just put out, I think that that is the vibe that we're going to go for. But there's also, we're going to have, um, we are dabbling in, like one of the coolest things about that 1975 record is like the interlude tracks, mm -hmm. where you have these like huge pop songs with great hooks and the, you know, the rhythm is just great and it just cracks off. And then, you know, it'll bring, they'll bring it back down to this interesting synth thing. And that is something that we're going to be doing on the record. I don't know. I don't know nice. how it'll be received or whatever, but that is something that we are. We've got some parts written, and that, I think that'll be a new layer that we're going to bring to our next record. I think you guys will find the way to pull it off because that's what great artists do. Yeah, I hope. Yeah, I. That's 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 the goal. I have faith. Nice. Thank you. I think that's it for my questions. Is there anything that you had on your mind? Uh no. I think yeah, that was awesome. Um. Well. I'm going to ask you one last question, which okay. is, um, 
What have you seen outside of music, read, experienced that's really been amazing that you think other people should see? I think that it's Black History Month. I think that everyone should see Selma and then <sighs> see that. I, 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 you know, it's like the funny thing is like I, I, I'm like so not looking forward to seeing. I've had it for so yeah. long. And I cry when I watch the preview, so I'm like, <laughs> when is going to be the day when I want to do this to myself emotionally? <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's so, it's so good. And then if you have the time, see the movie. But then I'm reading um, Taylor Branch wrote a three-part um, history of the civil rights movement based around King. Um, wow. And it's, it's so good. Like, see the movie and then read about the civil rights movement to see how broad in scope it was. And it wasn't just King. You know, it had... Mm-hmm. You know, there's thousands of movement activists in cadre, just the richness of the movement and the way it fundamentally transformed American politics, even though racism and, you know, institutional inequality and oppression remain in place. I think it's it's a movement that should be studied um, because there's a new movement today in the Black Lives Matter stuff. So I think, like, mm-hmm. take advantage of the month and all the discussion that's going on to see the movie and then really dive into some of the history you know, of the movement going into black power, et cetera. So, yeah, I think it's really, I think it's nice that one of the things that we're getting with this democratization of information is that like, it's been so long that it seemed like the civil rights movement was just this thing where Dr. King just led everybody. Right. And you don't get into like what was happening in Newark or what was happening in like all these Chicago and all these other places in America that weren't necessarily centered around Dr. King while they were influenced by it. And I think it's just so funny is like, you know, you don't, we're starting to only just see that education come out because it's not just people learning from history books anymore. It's right. learning from, and thankfully we also have still have a lot of people who are still alive during this who can tell us right. about it. And it's so funny. And then I'll just, I, I'll, it's so funny because King is often trotted out by conservatives or by people that oppose the current movement. And they say, oh, you know, look at King. He was, you know, he wore a suit and he was peaceful and he negotiated and all you rabble rousers in the streets, you know, you're not a continuation of the legacy. You're a perversion of Hmm. it. And then you watch Selma or you read about King and you see this is a guy that was hated by the status quo, Mm -hmm. you know, went to jail dozens of times. He was spied on by, um, you know, Lyndon Johnson, the guy, the FBI was following, you know, his every move. He was somebody that was not, a moderate in any sense he was because sometimes you get the, the 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 narrative that like malcolm x was the dangerous radical and malcolm x was the guy that you know the white status quo could really negotiate with and really it's like no king was the king was knee deep in the mass movement and was viewed as especially when he came out the war in vietnam and started to build the poor people's movement and went down to memphis to organize with the sanitation workers king was a radical in every sense of the word and I just think that's a tradition that's lost. And like Bill O'Reilly or whoever, they, they can trot him out and try to pretend like he's the antithesis of the Black Lives Matter protests. But then when you actually dig in, you see that really the people that are on the streets today are continuing King's legacy. And they're not. I just think that's something that has to be because all you know is you hear the eye of the dream speech and mm-hmm. he didn't want people to hate white people. You know, that's pretty much all you get. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's you make a great point. I think like one of the best things that. People, I don't know. Have you seen the thing when he was on Meet the Press of how, you know, these are the four like most respected, you know, intellectuals of the left and the right who are mm-hmm. grilling him on there. They are so disrespectful to him, right? And they treat him like he's subhuman garbage. And like when it's 
turned into history that this was a man that was respected and peaceful. It's like, no, they, these people hated this man and they tried to break him every second they could, just like sure. they try to break the Ferguson, the Black Lives Matter, any movement, just as they try to break us now. They tried to break him back then, and then they were not on his side, and people weren't on his side as much as oh, they no. always get caught for lying about it, and it's like, it's total bullshit. Right, and the, in V.I. Lenin's State and Revolution, it's, it starts with, you know, revolutionaries or radicals in their time, they're hated by the status quo, and then once they're dead, you know, everybody rushes to put a halo on them and, you know, to try to co-opt them for the state, and it's just the same thing happened to King. It's just so interesting to, to see how that played out, and now that, you know, we have a state holiday about the guy. Mm-hmm. So it's well, just, it's hilarious. Much, much to also, you know, I, I, what I really liked about this last time that uh, we uh, had the Dr. Martin Luther King celebration is that we got to show how many of these people also fought hard against having that holiday, like John McCain. Oh, you know, yeah. all these people who voted forever and ever and ever against ever celebrating this man. Now they pretend like, oh, no, I was always down with black people. Give me your vote. Oh, it's so it's embarrassing. But, yeah. Sadly... I wish we could just do a podcast like this all the time. <laughs> That'd be sweet. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this, man. Uh, yeah, this was this was this was super fun. Thank you. Awesome. I will talk to you soon. Cool. All right. See you later. Thanks so much for listening. That was my interview with Mike from Somos. If you'd like to find him on Twitter, he's at Michael Fiorent, F-I-O-R-E-N-T. You can find his band at Somos Band M-A. They're currently on tour with Tiger's Jaw and Lemuria. Their records, Temple of Plenty, is available through Tiny Engines. Their split with Sorority Noise is available from Bad Timing Records. Their split with Have Mercy is available through Hopeless Records, I believe. And you can find me on Twitter at at Jesse Cannon. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Off The Record. If you enjoy the show, the best way to say thank you is to share this episode on social media, whether it's your Twitter, your Facebook, your Tumblr, your whatever, and just tell your friends. We just want the word to spread. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, it's at Off The Record FM. You can get show notes, explore old episodes at offtherecord.fm. If you think we should be talking about something, please let us know with the hashtag TellOTR on Twitter or ask us via Tumblr at offtherecord.fm. This episode was produced by Jesse Cannon and Ashley Aaron. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week.